Good morning. Today, we are going to be continuing in our discussion about how we might understand ourselves as a church. Uh, today, I'm going to rely heavily on some slides, some diagrams, so, um, and my notes, because today is a day that I hope the things that we've been talking to about up to this point are going to really start to come together, uh, and I want to make sure that we get it right. Um, and after today, if you have questions, please follow up, please ask. Um, as you can already probably tell, but certainly today, things are just starting to build on each other, uh, and it's going to be important that the concepts and the ideas that we talk about are things that we can really sort of grasp and internalize uh, as we, again, are trying to become the church that God wants us to be. It's, it's crucial to understand these sorts of things. Um, we have been talking, well, last week we talked particularly about discipleship. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Great Commission and, and that piece of it. Um, we talked about how becoming a disciple is ultimately becoming like Jesus. Um, we talked about the phrase that, or the blessing that existed at that time that said, may, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And we talked about the rabbinical sort of process of becoming a rabbi and what that was like. Um, and prior to that, we spent two weeks talking about gospel and the idea that the gospel itself is centered on the uh, profession and the, uh, the idea that Jesus is our Lord uh, beyond just salvation. Jesus is the king of the world. And as we've said a number of times up to this point, if Jesus is the king of the world, that means we do what Jesus says. That's why we would become a disciple and that's why we would do the things that we're going to begin to talk about today. Today is, is the day when it becomes, starts to become a little more practical. Today we're going to spend some time, again, talking about the Great Commission. Today's talk is entitled Go. And if you recall the Great Commission, Jesus says go and make disciples and baptize them. And so we've been talking a lot about church movements as we go through this conversation. We've talked talking about the early church heavily, and we've also referenced a couple other movements, the Methodist movement, the Chinese church, uh, which are sort of exponential, tremendous growth movements within the life of the church. At every point, I hope you've understood and have seen how we're, we're rooting all of that in the life and teaching of Jesus, that it is the life and teaching of Jesus that gets played out and followed in these movements that causes the growth. Today, we're going to begin by reading scripture. It comes from 1 John. Uh, it is the first four verses. And then we will skip down and read the 14th. And it reads as follows. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all the people. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. It's the word of God. Right? Today we're talking about uh, what we're going to call the missional incarnational impulse. And this is a part of the church and certainly has been historically a part of the church. And it is the drive, it is the, the indwelling of the spirit that sort of forces us out into the world. This is, this is why we call today go, right? This is the going part. This is the propelling of the spirit by the spirit of us out into the world. And when we talk about these two words, missional and incarnation, missional is sort of self-explanatory, is mission, correct? Like it's, it's the thing that you've been given to do. And then the incarnation, of course, is referencing Jesus Christ as the one who has God himself become man, incarnate, to live amongst us. 
And so when we talk about the missional incarnational impulse, it is the desire or the, the need for the church to be thrust into the world, to incarnate itself, to live among the people on the mission of God. And when, when we think about that, it, it will become clear today, I think, but that runs up against and counter to what has become, for a large part of the church, an attractional way of doing church or an attractional model. And that is another way of saying what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks about the sort of consumerist mindset that the church has, especially in America, has developed. And an attractional church is we're going to have great worship, we're going to have great teaching, we're going to have a nice space, it's going to be beautiful, and then we are going to attract people into the church. And throughout time, certainly, the church has drawn people into it. That's the whole point. That's what we're talking about. But it has become the, the fundamental principle that we need to create, as we said last week, product, religious products and services, goods and services that draw those people, rather than us, as we're going to see today, going out to gather them and bring them in. Um, so there are two fundamental uh, ideas and ways of doing church that, that sort of butt heads up against each other. This is our, our diagram we've been referencing uh, with Jesus as Lord as the fundamental uh, principle of the gospel at the center. Last week, we talked about the top one, disciple-making, and then the one down to the left today, this missional, incarnational impulse is what we're talking about. Uh, the coming weeks, we'll talk about these others. Alan Hirsch, who's the author of the text that we're sort of drawing a lot of this information and sort of the, the heady part of it from, said this. He says, instead of being sown into the wind, the seeds are put into ecclesial. Ecclesial is church. Uh, ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Ecclesial storehouse is thus effectively extinguishing the purpose for which they were made. And in this quote, he's talking, sort of reiterating what we're saying, that as, as people of God that are supposed to be sent, we are the seeds to go out into the world. And rather than being dispersed into the world, we often find ourselves here, stored up in here. This is where we come to do church. This is where we praise God. This is where we think all of our communion with, our worship of God happens, and then that message of God gets locked up here, and then we're stuck trying to figure out, okay, how do we get people into this building? And then we fall into that sort of attractional way of thinking about church. But instead, we need to certainly be strewn out into the world. There are a few different sort of characteristics we're talking about for today of this missional, incarnational uh, impulse. This is sort of the heady part for today, so bear with me. The first is that we need to, and there are four Ps. The first is proximity. And this is the idea that we need to actually be near people, right? It doesn't do us any good. It doesn't spread the word. It doesn't spread the gospel. We don't grow the church by being here on Sunday and then going home and spending all our time in our house and then going to work and maybe we interact for a few people, with a few people, but we never actually go out and spend time with people, right? If, you, if you're not near people, how are you going to tell them about Jesus or live a life that is inspired by Jesus in front of them. So the first, the first concept is that you just literally have to be near other people, right? It sounds sort of obvious. Keep in mind, though, that Jesus, Jesus was around for 30 years before he starts his ministry, right? So Jesus is just spending time, and, and I can't begin to explain exactly why it took him 30 years, but it did. So for 30 years, he was just in the neighborhood, building relationships with people, talking with people, and a lot of being close, near, or having proximity is just spending time with people. A lot of times we talk about evangelism and we have this idea that we need to go out into the world and the first thing we do is we carry a sign with us, literally or figuratively, that 
you know, Jesus is God and you better believe or you're going to hell. And, and we just, the first thing out of our mouth is Jesus loves you, you gotta be a Christian, right? And that doesn't have to be the case. A lot of times we just need to spend time being near and around people because being near and around people says we like them, right? A, a lot of times if we just come with the gospel message right out of the gate, there's a time and a place for that, right? But then it becomes about that thing. And then they don't see us as being invested in them because we're not, really. We're invested in adding another to the list, another, saving another person, right? And, it, and we need to authentically and real, in a real way develop these relationships that God can work through. So the first step is just to be near people. Go, go somewhere, be around people. Now, obviously we live in a world right now, today, where that can be problematic given obviously the virus. So let's put a big footnote on our conversation today about that. We gotta figure out how to do that wisely. But in normal, regular times, go. So go to a coffee shop, go to a restaurant, go to a bar, go wherever it is that you wanna go and just be near people. And then the second P of today is presence, which sounds very similar, but by presence, I mean be available, be literally present. So it's important to go, but you can go and you can sit at a table in the corner and never actually talk to anybody, right? Or you can strike up a conversation, but be so caught up in your own way of thinking and your own ideas and what you wanna say that you don't actually listen, right? And so it's important to be near people, but then also to be authentically and honestly interested in people, to be available to them so that when they have a problem, they can talk to you. When they have a question, they know that you're a safe person to come ask a question to, right? So and that's, I mean, it's just building relationships with people. But again, when we think about, we are the church and we're in, you know, we gotta evangelize people. We go out and we're so eager and, and ready to cast that message upon them and hopefully draw them in that we forget that we actually have to like people and spend time with them and develop relationships with them. And then the third P is powerlessness. And this uh, is easier to see on sort of a, a macro level. And if we think through the history of church and the way that church has done mission in the past, there, there are times and places in which as the church, we go into a culture, whether it's a foreign country or even in our world, in our, in our culture, there are subcultures, right? We go with our ideas and our way of doing church and relating to God and we try to thrust it on them. And we have, in our church histories, done that at times violently. We have gone and said, we know God, we know the way to worship God, we know what's best, this is how you do it. And what the P of powerlessness says is, we resist that temptation to say, I know what's best. Again, a little footnote, we know the gospel, that's best, right? But how that gets communicated, understood, has to be left to the hearer. Does that make sense? So we have to go with an attitude of service, an attitude that is humble, present the gospel after developing relationships, and then understand that that person's gonna understand it based on their life, their experiences, their perspectives, and we need to allow God to work in their life how God sees fit. It's not always the way we want it to look. And then the final one, the final P is of course, we've referenced already, but proclamation. At some point, we actually do have to tell them the gospel. We do have to communicate that Jesus is Lord, right? that Jesus loves them, that, that without Jesus, we are in peril. Right? There is a consequence to living without Jesus, 
And, and that needs to be, of course, communicated. That is the whole point of this, ultimately. Um, but we must actually proclaim that. And the idea here is to take the church to the people as opposed to bringing the people to the church. All right, that's just another way of saying we need to be missional rather than attractional. What ultimately has to happen is we need to embed that gospel within the various tribes or subcultures that exist even in our world uh, and allow that gospel message and the power of Jesus to work within them. And that's necessarily going to look different from group to group to group. All right? And we need to be okay with that. But it always puts people circling around the center of Jesus. That's why the diagram we've referenced every week has Jesus as Lord in the center. Jesus is the center. And today what we're going to talk about is this idea of a bounded set versus a centered set. And this is a little heady, so bear with me. I've got some diagrams to explain what I'm talking about. But when I understood this, it sort of changed everything in terms of how you see the world, how you see the family of God, other Christians. Uh, and, and it's in some ways very freeing uh, and allows us to accept varying perspectives. You'll see it here in a second. So the first one that we're going to talk about is a bounded set. And if we represent it graphically, this is sort of what it can look like. And a bounded set typically is a checklist. So in the church, it ends up being doctrines, beliefs. There is a, a list of right beliefs. And if you want to be a Christian, you check off all the boxes, and then you're in the group. And so in this diagram, we have certain people who check those boxes, and they're in the group. And then we have others who miss one or two or all of them, and they're therefore out of the group. All right? And this is why churches split because I have a checklist that's different than your checklist. And so we can't be in the same church together. I gotta go down the street and start a new one, right? And this is when we get angry at each other and we don't like each other. And when we start yelling at each other and saying, you're not a Christian because you don't think this, you baptize babies and we don't, or you know, whatever, that, whatever doctrine or dogma you wanna pick, we start to fight over. The other way to think about things is a centered set. And rather than having a checklist that defines who's in and who's out, what defines who's in and who's out is who's at the center. Are you orbiting, in this case, around Jesus? Do you have as your core Jesus? Which means I can have one perspective, one lifestyle, one way of seeing the world, and you can have one that's completely different. And we're both running around Jesus. So I could be down here at the left, and I'm moving up towards Jesus, and you could be way up to the right, and you could be moving down towards Jesus, but we have completely different beliefs on matters. Because our, our, our experiences, we have a different starting point, right? And that's okay. And that's why I say, as, as we go out into the world, we need to allow the message of the gospel to get into a tribe or a person or a group of people and work on them from the place that they are. But what that means is they could have a different doctrinal belief, right? If we, if we understand what it means to be a Christian is to believe the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that he lived, that he was crucified, that he was resurrected, ascended, that's the core. Just about everything else the church disagrees on in one way or the other. That fundamental core belief is the center. And so we can disagree on baptism. We can disagree on theologies of communion, the Eucharist, sacraments. We can disagree on behaviors even. We can disagree on whether women can teach or not, right? Because we are at different points on it in this group, right? 
We have different perspectives. But if we're all moving towards Jesus, we then are all in the family of God, and we need to allow each other the grace, grant each other the grace, to work through our, our deal, work through our theologies, and move towards Jesus. And if we're all moving towards Jesus, then we can all be family together. I don't have to reject you because you don't check off one dogma or doctrinal belief that I agree to. I am not reformed. Caleb is, right? I think that's awesome. We have different ways of understanding how God works. And the truth be told, when we get to the other side and we get to ask God, my guess is it's probably some third way or some combination, right? That's just the truth of the matter. I, I don't stand up here arrogant enough to say I know what God thinks on every matter. But because we think different things, and that's fine. We both are moving towards Jesus. We're, we're both focused on Jesus as Lord and building his kingdom. We're brothers. And you can think something different than I think about an issue. I can say something up here that really makes your skin crawl. Right? That's okay. It's in having those discussions and debates that we find God. What's not really okay is just to shut each other out because we disagree. How are you going to grow if you don't talk to somebody who has a different idea than you? I, I, I probably have changed my mind about more things doctrinally in 20, 25 years of studying God, scripture, and history of the church than I've stuck to. That's part of being a disciple and growing and becoming like Jesus. You're going to have to change your mind. If you don't, there's a problem, right? If you're not being challenged and changing the way you think, there's a problem. You're not moving towards Jesus. And so here's just a representation of the two side by side. The other idea that we're gonna sort of throw onto the diagram and map onto here is this sort of line, it's, it's, it looks like a timeline, but it's not, but M is a meaningful social cultural difference, okay? So the further we go down this line, if we're at M0, M0 are people just like us. M1 represents one socially, culturally meaningful difference. So it could be language, it could be a belief system, it could be a cultural difference. M2, another step. So now we have language and culture. M3, another one. And M4, another one. And so the further away we get from each other in terms of perspective and life experience, the more difficult it is for us to relate to each other. Right, that sounds right, right? That's true. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take this and then map it onto our diagram of centered set. Okay, so it's a little hard to see, but down here bottom left is M0. So the, the lighter color is the people just like us. It's real easy to go out and talk to and relate to those people. And so our church and churches like us sit in that one. One step around the circle is maybe African-American churches or churches in big cities, right? There's a, there's a meaningful difference there. They may still look very much like us, but there's at least one real difference in the way that they live their life and they think. But it's perfectly fine, they're part of the family, but they're different, right? And then you get the idea that the further you go around, the more and more unlike us they become. And so to the point where they become M4 and you can extrapolate there and it becomes even more, those churches and those people look nothing like us. And it's really easy to look at them and be like, you're not a Christian. Why? because they have a different starting point from us. They have a different checklist. But the truth of the matter is they look at us and they think the same thing because they're just as far from us as we are from them. 
Does that make sense? Right, so we have to be able to say, okay, we have lots of differences, right? It can be difficult to communicate. It can be difficult to sit in the same church together because we have so, I mean, if people speak Spanish, we have a hard time in here. If, you know, M4 is, you know, a Muslim in the Middle East, how are we going to evangelize someone in the Middle East? How would you do that today, personally? I have no idea. It'd be very difficult. We've got language, culture, religious beliefs. What is the inroad for the gospel there? That's, that can be difficult. What about a punk kid in Zanesville, Ohio? Still very much like us, right? Maybe one step from us. There's, there's some way that we can talk, we at least speak the same language. We live in the same town. We have similar experiences. Our lives are more similar. It's easier for us to relate to, to build those relationships with, to be near, to be present to, right? To build those relationships in order to proclaim the gospel. So the question then becomes, how in the world would we sitting M0 be able to, to reach someone over there? Let's say that someone's floating around in M4 way over there, but they're going the wrong way. They're not even circling around Jesus. They're just over there culturally and, and geographically. How do we get there? Well, there are really two options that I know of. One is to become a missionary, and there are people that do that, and that requires learning languages, learning cultures. My brother and sister-in-law and their family were missionaries in Papua New Guinea, and they spent years learning languages, learning cultures. They moved there. They spent three or four years just getting to know people and learning the language before they ever began to talk about Jesus. And it, it turns out there were lots of problems <laughs> in trying to relate what they knew and took with them to these new cultures and people, right? Um, so that's one way to do it, is to become a missionary. The other way to do it is, okay, well, let's spawn churches, right? Let's spawn tribes. Let's, let's create new churches that are one or two steps from us because we can do one step. We can do two steps. So let's go be near those people that are one and two steps away from us, right? Bring them in to the church, bring them into a relationship with God, and then spin them out as an M1 or M2 church. Now, they're only one or two steps, right? So you see how we, if we multiply churches and allow those, that multiplication to change, to allow the gospel to manifest itself and live itself out in a different way, then that group can then reach into a group that we may not be able to, right? So church multiplication whether we're talking institutional, formal church like this, or literally just house churches, as the early church was, is the way, this is the way that the church moves through cultures, moves through the Roman Empire, how it got out of Judaism into sort of the Gentile world, which itself was diverse, right? You have one group that's like another group, and they talk to each other, and that group's like another group, and it just sort of, as Hirsch said, you become seeds cast into the wind, and they start crop, sprouting up everywhere, right? Okay. What we have to do in order to allow that to happen, though, is, is to be humble enough and allow for people to express their faith in ways that are meaningful to them, right? And allow God to work on them from their perspective, okay? And so we need to allow people to be different than us we need to allow people to be wrong 
according to our way of thinking. Right? Now, there are what we call, and I like this analogy, there are closed-handed doctrines. Those are the things that define Christianity. Certainly Jesus' Lord is one. There's probably some others that we can throw in there. Those are the things that we all have to hold in common to identify as Christian. You can't just believe whatever you want, right? You have to be on this chart surrounding Jesus. But the other ones, the open-handed doctrines, you may be absolutely convinced of one or the other, but it's okay if somebody else isn't. All right? You may be, I, I mean, I know I am convinced of things now that I wasn't, like I said, 10 years ago. So I may change my mind. I may realize that, whoa, that thing that I thought was so important, Jesus actually says something different, and I've got to be willing to change myself. I also need to recognize and allow other people to go through that process also. Just because they don't think it now or believe it now doesn't mean that God's not working on them, that they don't believe Jesus and they're not a Christian. They just think something different, and God has work to do on them, just like he does on me. Okay? All right, another uh, table or uh, diagram. The way that this works in terms of sort of theology, and this is kind of where the things come together in terms of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is we begin with Christology, which is a, is a fancy word for saying study of Jesus, the study of Christ. Who is Christ? What does he say? Study Christ, right? We start with Christ. Jesus is Lord is our center, Okay. We then go to missiology, which is the fancy word for the study of mission. So Jesus is Lord, he gives us a mission, and then we decide how are we going to be a church. I mentioned earlier that ecclesia is the Greek word for church, right? So ecclesiology is the study of church. So we start with Jesus is Lord, he gives us a mission. What's our mission? What was last week? Make disciples, right? then how do we, so now we're, now we're to the point where we're saying, okay, how do we do that? It depends. It depends on who you're going to, how the, this gospel, how this message of Jesus is Lord is going to make itself contextually relevant, okay? So we understand we've got to make disciples, but the question is, how do we do that? How do you do that with somebody that's different than you? Somebody who's very like you, that's easy. We just sit on a conversation, they come with the same presuppositions. They come with the same sort of mental framework, uh, assumptions, lifestyles. Well, it's, it's easy to relate to them, and that can be easy. We can do this with them, and that works. But somebody that's different, who's M1, 2, 3, 4 away from us, well, we have to be willing to understand them, spend time with them, right? When Paul goes to Greece and Athens, he spends time walking around and finding that statue to the unknown God, right? And for him, that was the inn. If he just gotten up and started preaching the gospel as he knows it, who knows who would have responded? Maybe no one. But he found the thing that was culturally significant and relevant, the inroad for the gospel in that particular culture. We must be willing to allow for diversity. And I was thinking, just last night, and I was jotting these down, even within our own church, the small group that we are, uh, we've talked before, we have, you know, there are certainly two churches that can't have come from here, so we have done this. Uh, again, we mentioned last week that may not have been the healthiest thing, but uh, it, it has happened. Churches have been sent out that are different. Um, Leah, you've got two Bible studies, right? Two sections of sort of the same thing. Are they the exact same? They're different. Different people are coming, right? Uh, Caleb, you've got a study and a prayer group. Uh, Jen, you've got a study, right? That's probably not running right now, but... 
you're in Leah's right now, but, but I know you've, you've got a small group, right? You did? We did. <laughs> so maybe that'll start up again when things go back to normal. Um, I know we've got a men's group, a women's group. The Silers next door have all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and we have had a second service, and my guess is at some point we'll have to revisit that. Um, and the reason for that is why? Because there are people who worship different, understand different, relate to God differently, and we need to be willing to do church differently in order to reach them. All of these groups, to my knowledge, all of them have at least one or two people that aren't part of our church. And so if we think about sort of a family tree and sort of how we spawn groups that then connect with other people, even the groups that we have already are are already doing this. It's just a matter of recognizing that and sort of throwing gas on that fire and allowing those things to flame into existence. We're going to reach out by having small groups that are able to connect with people. Because not everybody's going to connect with this thing that we're doing on Sunday morning. If everybody did, they'd already be here. Um, and it's, it's through spawning these groups. Some of them, like these Bible studies, they're going to exist for three or four months and sort of like come back into the fold. And then we'll have others that go out, right? Sometimes others that will go out will become their own thing and they need to be lived. They need to live on their own and perhaps they come, become their own churches. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Um, but it is in allowing those things to sort of come about uh, and be contextually relevant and allow the conversations that ha- are particular and important to those groups of people to thrive, right, and, and to be given voice. We are in a few weeks, probably I think three, we're going to start a process of deconstruction, which is a scary word if you know what it means. Uh, it's a philosophical exercise when you really just take a self-critical look at, for, I mean, what we're going to do is look at, look at ourselves as a church, um, a manual, but also sort of Western European American church. And we're going to talk about the things that we do and why we do them. And we're going to see that a lot of what we do is culturally dependent. It has, it's come about because of the way our history as a people has been and the way that we've done things culturally. We've developed buildings and ways of doing church that are expressions of the gospel in our culture. What we're going to do is look at where they came from and why that is so that we can then be free to allow other people to do things differently or in some cases free to let them go for ourselves because they just don't mean anything to us anymore. They've just been handed down to us by people who, for whom they meant something and they were important, but maybe they don't matter to us anymore. And so we can, we can let them go because they're not gospel. Okay? A lot of times... Uh, <laughs> Some of the problem, and, and you may be thinking, yeah, this is, this is going on right now. Sometimes church is boring, right? Um, a lot of people have problems with church. A lot of people leave the church because they're just, they're bored, right? Some of us have a vibrant life of faith. And so we come in here, as Caleb mentioned earlier, and this is the place where we celebrate together and we report what happened through the week. We have praises, we have concerns, we come together as a body of Christ and we commune with God in this time and place as a community. But that is dependent on us having a vibrant life, spiritual life outside of here, right? We're getting recharged for something. We're coming back to report something. For other people who this, this is church, well, if this is all you do, you come in here, you sit and you hear me drone on for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, uh, like that, 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 that gets boring. 
We were, I used to be part of a, a local philanthropy group. I remember distinctly discussions about how that group has to be doing something or people are just not gonna come be part of it. If you're not actually doing anything, why are you spending the time coming? We're gonna look at Romans. Uh, this is 12.1. This is part of Paul when he's talking about, um, actually the heading in my Bible is the new life of Christ or new life in Christ. And he's defining for his readers, in this case, what worship is. And he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, especially if you've spent time with Leah and her group, you're learning about worship and what that is and what a biblical understanding of worship is. Um, But a lot of times we think this is worship, singing, listening, to me, talk, right? Coming together, this is war- and this is, this is worship. In most of the New Testament, the, this is the Greek word, the, the letters that look funky that you don't recognize. Okay, this is the word that gets used for worship. Caleb, you know that word? Proskuneo, right? Um, and it means to worship. And, and, when, and this word is like the falling down prostrate, the, the giving adoration. This is, this is worship, okay? And this is what we usually think of as worship. In this passage, Paul uses another word. This one is achaia. This word is the word that Paul uses here. He also uses it in the ninth chapter for worship. To us, worship is worship. Not in this case. This, the root word is latris, which means servant. Right? In some, depending on what translation you have, some translations actually here say a service of worship or a worship is your worship service. They, they put that in there, and sometimes it's in the footnote. But what does that tell you? Yeah, say it louder, Drew. What? It's an action, right? It's, it's service, right? When Paul's talking about being a slave to God or a servant of God, it, it, it's doing something, right? It's, it's, for what we're talking about today, it's being sent on mission in the service of God. It's being, placing yourself in the service of the greater mission that Jesus has given us. In the Old Testament, a third of the words used for worship are, come from the same, a similar root, the Hebrew root for servant. So there has always been, as part of worship, this idea that it is an active servant serving of God. Think about just the, the creation story, right? Adam gets put in the garden with Eve and told what? Get to work, Get to work right? Do something, right? Take care. Right? And in the second of the two Genesis narratives, God brings all the animals, and the first, one of the first things we see mankind doing is giving names to them. And then their, their job is to care for them. Being on mission is, in fact, the way that God has always worked. Right? I mean, we're just going to go through sort of a list here. The idea when Jesus says go to make disciples, right? going has, has been the point. Adam, we just mentioned, gets given a mission in the garden right, to go and to serve his God as the image bearer for the world. The, the Genesis narrative and the way that uh, the creation story is put together is much like, and the world that gets built is much like a temple. And we've talked our first week together about how the temple was the place in which God dwells. And in the temple, there was always an, an image of God, right? Every temple you go into, regardless of the religion, has an image of the deity in the temple. Adam and Eve... Were the, were the image of God in the temple of the world. Their role is to reflect the goodness of the creator into the world and reflect the praise and adoration of the world back to the creator. 
They are the go-between. As the image of God, they, they pass back. Their, their service is that, reflecting the good creation and, and or sort of the goodwill of the creator towards the world and to reflect the praise back to the God. Abraham, God does what to, well, he was Abram at the time. What does he do? He calls him out of the land of Ur, right? And says, go. Moses calls him, right? With the burning bush and says, go to my people, go to Pharaoh. Israel itself, a people called out for the entire world, right? To go to the world. Jonah gets called and and doesn't go. (laughs) and gets swallowed, right? He ultimately goes, right? But he's called and sent. Jesus himself, um, and we looked at this passage in Luke where he says that the people are clamoring around him to do more miracles and healings. And he says, no, 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 I have got to go preach the gospel. And we looked at it in our first week on gospel because what he preaches is the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say, it was for this purpose that I was sent. Jesus himself called sent. And then he gathers his 12 and sends them out. And then he gathers 72 calls them together and sends them out. And then, of course, on the hill, on the mountain, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he gathers them all together, gives, gives them the great commission, and says, go, make disciples, baptize all nations, right? And the point of discussion about Paul's usage and the word that he used is that going, recognizing the call and going is worship. Worship is this, this is part of it, This is the first Greek word we looked at, right? This is the bowing down, giving adoration, celebrating the life that we've had with God through the week. The other half of it is the going, right? It is getting up out of our seats, off our butts, walking out the door and going to the world to make the disciples. If you think about the first week we spent together, we talked about church and who remembers what sort of the the point of that whole discussion about church was. At the end of it, we, got, we talked about how what uh, Peter tells us is that we are spiritual stones built into the house of God and that it is in us, not in this building, but in us as the temple where God dwells. And this goes all the way back to Genesis and what we just talked about. We are the, we are the people who reflect God's good nature and God's will for the world. And then we come here and we reflect back the praise of the world to our creator God. But if God lives in us, how does God get into the world? Through, through us, right? Go, now, God could, and I'm sure at times does himself come, but the, the system that he set up for whatever reason is that we go into the world and we carry kingdom, we carry God, we carry Jesus to the world. If God is going to reach into the neighborhood, whether that's the neighborhood you live in, the business establishments that you frequent on a regular basis or this very neighborhood, we have to go into that neighborhood. We have to be near people. We have to be available and present with people. We have to be humble and authentic with those people. And we have to be about being a disciple and then making disciples of and with those people. Gathering on Sundays is only one half of worship. Recognizing our call and going is the other part of our worship 
in response to a Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. Amen? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are and that you have throughout time called the people that you have needed to call and sent them to the world so that we may know you. Throughout the entire history of Israel, we watch as you have tapped people to speak for you, to bring your love, grace, and mercy, and also at times judgment and chastisement to the world, to your people, for our betterment. And God, today as we have heard about the importance of Jesus being not only our Savior, but also our Lord. And we have understood and began to see what it means to become a disciple and the great requirements and responsibilities that are put on, put on us as we live into that reality. We hear today, God, that you are calling us to go. And so we ask, God, that you would begin to show us where it is that we ought to go to whom it is that we ought to go. We ask in the coming weeks that you would begin to peel back the curtain on that particular question, Lord. As we sit here today, we know that you are a good God and we know that you have called us together for a purpose and we know certainly that going is part of that purpose, Lord. We just need help determining where and how. And so we ask that you would convict each of us individually, show us in our own lives where it is that you need us, and that you would corporately as a church, as a body, show us who we are supposed to be in this time and place. We ask this in your son's name and in the power of your spirit. Amen. Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the risen sun. Lift your eyes, we are his radiant bride. It's time to, to rise. It's time to go. It's time to be the light to the world that we are called to be. May you today go in the love and peace of your, your creator. And may you today, tomorrow and the next day, pray to God, discern with the guiding of his spirit how even now in the midst of this pandemic, we can go to our neighbors. Perhaps it's a phone call, maybe a Facebook message. I don't know what that is for you because I don't know who it is to whom you are called. But there's someone today and tomorrow who needs you in their life, who needs you to be the voice, the hands, the feet of their redeemer, their savior, and their God. And you are called for that purpose. So may you go forth from here and may you rise.